Back in 2 Samuel 7, not to have you turn to 2 Samuel 9 and then change on you, but back in 2 Samuel, Samuel, Samuel 7, God made a promise to David, and God's promise to David was basically simply this. It's more complex than this. We'll keep it real simple because we covered it in detail last week. David, your throne will endure forever. David, I will put on your throne your kingdom. Your son will sit on your throne, and your son's kingdom will endure forever. It will never end, David. The blessing for you is that your family will always rule on your uh, throne. And David is, of course, flabbergasted uh, that God might make this kind of a promise to him. Uh, David, in fact, is sort of uh, stunned. He's, uh, he, he thinks, how could God make a promise like this? Think of it this way. I mean, as we're th- uh, serving God and living for God, we might have hope in our heart that as we're putting faith in God and seeking to live according to His ways and trusting Him for His grace in our life every day, that we might, by His grace, experience His blessing. Isn't that a hope we have? That's a good hope, isn't it? That God might bless us in many ways. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a good thing to hope for. And, and David also uh, was hopeful and looking forward to the fact that God might uh, bless him. But God does something stunning for David that he might not have expected. So God has been blessing David. Which, how many battles has David lost? None. He, everywhere he goes, he wins. And, and David now is living in a palace, and David now is established on his throne. And God comes and makes a promise to David not for merely continued blessing in his kingdom. God makes a blessing on David that his throne would endure forever. So God says David, to David, David, I'm not just blessing you for your life. I'm blessing you and your family as long as you could imagine. Now, some of you here are old enough to have children who are grown. One or two of you are old enough to have children who have children who are grown. You don't have to answer this out loud, but what would you take in your life? The blessing of God on your life or the blessing of God on your children? That's not a hard question to answer, is it? And God has come to David and said, I will give you that. What would that be like? I mean, wouldn't that be exciting? God says, David, I will bless your family and your children, your child, your son will be on the throne and endure on your kingdom for all of time. And this is David's response in 2 Samuel verse uh, 7, beginning in verse 18. Who am I, sovereign Lord? What is my family that you've brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. I mean, isn't this stunning for David? You can hear the stunning uh, uh, response in his heart. God, what are you doing? This is crazy, God. What are you up to? But he says this even more. Look in verse 20 of 2 Samuel 7. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. David says, who am I? I'm just a guy, and you're blessing me and my family. And then he follows up with that, and he says, God, you know your servant. And we talked about this a little bit last week. He's basically saying, God, um, do you remember what I'm like? You know my heart. You know my heart is always after you, but you also know the other parts of my heart that aren't. 
There are motives and secrets in, in the warehouse of my heart that God, only you know about. And God, how could you do this for someone you know like me? God, you know me. How could you possibly show your graciousness and your greatness to me, a mere man, not only just a mere man, a man like me? We have to keep this in mind about God. Remember, God doesn't simply know all of our past. He knows all of our what? Future. And this morning we're in 2 Samuel 9 and 10. But what happens in 2 Samuel 11? Bathsheba. This is not a mystery for God. That didn't catch God by surprise. He was, oh, I had no idea David could do something like that. David knew these things were already in his heart. David wasn't surprised when Bathsheba happened because he knew those things were already in his heart. They're in all of us, frankly. God also knew they were there, and that did not stay the hand of God from pouring out his blessing on, on David and his sons. David is overwhelmed with God's greatness and God's love, but David is also overwhelmed with this fact, God knows my heart. The fact is, I think, this might be something that's a little bit troubling about God for us, and we may not think of it in these terms all the time, but I think sometimes it might get into our head a little bit. If God knows me, and if God is God, God knows everything. So if God is who He says He is, and frankly He is, some of you are saying, well, I don't believe He is. Well, fortunately, His existence doesn't require our belief in Him. He is who He says He is, and God is God, so therefore He knows us, every nook and cranny of our heart and motivations and desires. He knows everything, and since He knows everything, how could He possibly love me? How could He possibly love somebody that does, thinks the things we think? I mean, think of it this way. I know it's a Sunday school answer, so we also, well, of course God loves me. There's entire songs written about it. Jesus loves me. This I know. So, of course He does. But think of it this way. There are people in your life, and there may be, may be people living in your home, and you thought if they really knew what was going on in my heart and mind, they, would, they could not receive me. This is a significant problem for relationships for people everywhere. If people really knew me, they would not receive me. If people really knew what was going on in my life, they would not accept me. Some of us walked into this room saying, if, if they would know what I did this week, they wouldn't let me in. Or maybe they stayed home and it's none of us, right? And we, so what we do is we put up these false fronts and let people have what we think they want. So I'm going to act like everybody thinks I ought to act, and I'm going to be like everybody thinks I want to act, should act, and so therefore they will love me, right? Nobody here does that, right? Of course not. So I put up this false front on here's what I must be so people will receive me and like me. What's the problem with that? They're not loving me. They're loving this pretend version of me that I'm presenting to them, and then I don't feel loved at all. And God, we can't play that game because if we believe He is who He says He is in the Bible, He doesn't buy the false front. He sees right through it, sees right into our soul, and says, I know what you're like. I know exactly what you're like. And so the problem is, whether we say it out loud or not, we ask this question to ourselves, how could God possibly love me? How is that even possible? Because He actually knows what's going on in the dark and hidden places of my heart. Could God really love me? If God could really love me, 
then how is that even possible? And in what way could he possibly love me? And I'm hoping as we look at 2 Samuel 9 and 10 today, we're going to answer that question. It turns out God can love you, and he does. But we want to know why. We don't just want to have this sort of sense, well, God is, is a nice guy. He loves us in a very particular way. And this is the title of the message today, and it fits with God, and we're going to see it in David's life and explain it in detail, hopefully. Unusual kindness. If you like writing stuff down, that's the title of the message today. Unusual kindness. Could God really love me and how? This is how, through unusual kindness. Not normal kindness, unusual kindness. Let me show you how. First thing here, 2 Samuel 9. We're going to look at two kinds of unusual kindness, 2 Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 10. Here in chapter 9, we're going to look at kindness in the face of uncertainty. Kindness in the face of uncertainty. So David decides, you know what, I need to bless someone in Saul's house. And do you think David was just feeling gracious that day? He woke up one day, it's been a good week, seeing some good returns on the 401k. I should hook somebody up. David said, no, this, that's not what, he, what, what is happening. David said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for whose sake? Jonathan's sake. Remember, Jonathan was Saul's son, and David and Jonathan had a very close relationship. They loved one another deeply. And back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, David and Jonathan have a conversation, and they make a covenant with one another. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 20, beginning in verse 13. David, this is Jonathan speaking to David. David, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And Saul at this point was still on the throne of Israel. But this is what he asked, verse 14. Jonathan says to David, but show me unfailing kindness. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And then listen to verse 15 of 1 Samuel 20. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the earth. And so Jonathan and David made a covenant. Jonathan said to David before Jonathan died, Please show your unfailing kindness to me and your unfailing kindness to my family even when all of your enemies are gone. So David, back in 2 Samuel 9, realizes he has a covenant that he must honor with Jonathan who is now dead. There's a covenant, a promise they made together, and David says, I made a promise to Jonathan I would show unfailing kindness to his family. I'd better find out if there's any of those alive. So he sends out the search party and finds the servant, the steward of Saul's household, a very high-ranking official in Saul's household, and they find Mephibosheth. Please do not name your children Mephibosheth. All the teachers in the room will agree with this. <laughs> Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, and a terrible, tragic story is told back in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, the day that King Saul and, and Jonathan were killed in battle together. Word got back to the house of Jonathan that he, that he was dead. And Jonathan had a, a son, Mephibosheth. He was about five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel that they had died. 
His nurse picked him up and fled. But listen, as she hurried, he fell. She dropped the baby. And he became disabled. He wasn't born unable to walk. It was an injury sustained as a child in the hurried escape of the nurse. Why would the nurse be escaping with young Mephibosheth? Because now that the throne is vacant, the pretenders to the throne are going to seek to establish their power. How do you do that? Kill the king's family. Mephibosheth was in terrible danger, and the nurse was seeking his safety, which she provided in spite of his injury. So Mephibosheth, as a very young boy, was injured because of the quick escape plan of his nurse, and he was injured. Mephibosheth was grandson to King Saul. Mephibosheth could make a claim for the throne, couldn't he? His grandfather was king. It doesn't appear that there were other claimants to the throne who were alive. What should David have done with a claimant to the throne? If he was a king, a normal king of that period, what should he have done? Sought him out and killed him. That's what you do. This isn't a question. This isn't a let's have a meeting and get a committee together. This is just kill the guy. In fact, Mephibosheth knew this. So Mephibosheth was living in a home in Lodabar, which was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He was as far as Jerusalem as you, from Jerusalem as you could get and still be in Israel. And he was brought before David. What do you think he thought was going to happen when he was brought before David? That he was dead man. But David wondered, is there anyone left who I can show unusual kindness? What is this kindness that David is talking about? Actually, he describes it for us in Psalm 15. Psalm 15, verses 1 through 4, a psalm of David. David tells us exactly what he's thinking about kindness. I'm going to read Psalm 15, verses 1 through 4. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Lord, who's like you? Who can even stand your presence? Who is like you enough that they could stand in the same room as you? And he says, this is who, verse 2, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. Who else can stand in the presence of the Lord? Verse 3, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. And he continues on. Who else can stand in the presence of the Lord? What else does it look like to be blameless? Verse 4, someone who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. And listen to this, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Long time ago, when Saul was still king, David made a promise to Jonathan that he would show unusual and steadfast kindness to his family, and now, it's, now the bills come due. Now it's time to honor his oath, and it's time for him to keep his oath, even though it's going to cost him. This kindness, this unusual kindness in the face of uncertainty is faithfulness, not mere faithfulness, but a specific kind of faithfulness. What kind? Faithfulness that hurts. 
Faithfulness that has a cost to it. Faithfulness that leaves a mark, empties the wallet, robs the time, creates uncertainty. This is the kind of faithfulness that David had agreed to with his good friend Jonathan, and now he is saying it's time to pay the bill. It's time to show unusual kindness to someone I shouldn't show kindness to. Just remind you of what Jonathan said to David in regard to this in um, 1 Samuel 20. If I can find the thing, 1 Samuel 20, 18. First Samuel twenty fourteen, Jonathan said this, Show me unfailing kindness, and this is the important part. Are you listening? Give me a yes if you're still with me. Whew, that's good. I was worried for a minute. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. So he says to David, I don't want you to do your kindness. Your kindness is awful. David, I want you to show me what the Lord's like. I want to show you the unfailing kindness of God himself. See, Jonathan knew what God was like. Jonathan knew what David was like. David was a man after God's own heart, according to uh, Samuel, when he was anointing him. And David says, David, I know you pursue God's own heart. I want you to show kindness like God shows. And God shows unusual kindness. So what this meant for his kindness to Mephibosheth is it could not merely be passive kindness. David didn't get to show Mephibosheth by having the ability to not kill him. So, okay, I'll be nice to Mephibosheth. I won't cut his head off. See, once David made a covenant with Jonathan that he would show God's kind of kindness, he now had to have kindness that was active, kindness that took initiative, kindness that engaged someone who was an enemy of his throne. Here are three costs that David bears in showing kindness to Mephibosheth. Number one, it creates uncertainty in the palace and the court of King David. To bring in a son of Saul into the court is going to create all kinds of questions about who runs the joint. And the question will be, will Mephibosheth at some point seek to bring together a power base to overtake David's throne? Everybody in the court of David is going to create all kinds of uncertainty and the unknowns are going to be everywhere. David's going to have to to answer a ton of questions when he does this. I mean, could you imagine what Joab said? I think they left it out of the Bible because it was unprintable. So it, it creates all kinds of uncertainty in the court of David when he brings in the son of the former king into his court, into his royal presence. Second cost is this. There really could be no return on his investment of kindness. What could Mephibosheth do for David? Could he serve in the military? No, he has a significant physical disability that would prevent him from someday learning to be a great general or someday learning to be a great military person. He's not going to be able to bring military might to David's aid. What other expertise does Mephibosheth have at this point? It appears on balance for his life, his expertise is not getting killed by David. He has likely been in running and in hiding. He wouldn't have experience and expertise in international negotiations or trade or diplomacy. He's been on the run with his nursemaid. 
What does Mephibosheth bring to David? A cost basis is what Mephibosheth brings to David. And what's his cost basis? And that's the third thing that it costs him. He's got to give him food. Because David says, you will eat at my table forever. He has to buy him clothes. He has to make sure he has proper rank. He has to have servants serving David. So David now has taken on to his uh, cost basis another person to take care of. These are all things that David would incur in showing active and unusual kindness, not to a friend, not to a loyal member of his kingdom. Who is it? This is an enemy. This is someone who could potentially, if he played his cards right, unseat David from his throne. Here's what one author says about the kindness that David was showing. This kindness, this unusual steadfast kindness that is of David and of God is not an emotional response to beauty or to merit or to kindness, but rather this. It is a moral attitude dedicated to another's good whether or not that other is lovable, worthy, or responsive. What is God's kindness as shown through David like? I'm going to read it again because it's worth remembering. It is not an emotional response to beauty, merit, or kindness, but it is a moral attitude dedicated to another's good, whether or not that other is lovable, worthy, or responsive. David was kind like this. Why? Because God is kind like this. Everybody thinks the Old Testament God is just angry. This is the Old Testament God. Turns out the same God as the New Testament God. And this is what his kindness is like. It's unusual and it's steadfast, not merely for those who are uh, his friends, but to those who are his enemies, and even when it creates uncertainty. What was Mephibosheth's response? Through his very humble and self-deprecating response, he says, who am I? I'm a dead dog. It's a significant insult to himself. His response revealed three things about his attitude. Number one, he knew he didn't deserve it. He was overwhelmed by what the king was doing, and he was humbled by what the king was doing. He knew this was undeserved. He was overwhelmed by it, and he was humbled by it. His response tells us that he thought this of David. David is gracious. David is generous. David is close. David is stooping to meet me where I am. David is gracious, generous, and close. Mephibosheth, in fact, has a family of his own. Later on in the chapter, it says he has a son, which means he also has a wife. Mephibosheth's son is spared, and David says, or what's regarded to to Mephibosheth later, is he ate at the king's table like a son. Not only did David bring him in and give him a free meal, He brought him in and said, sit with my kids. You are like a son to me. Your son is like my grandson to me. This is what the Lord's kindness is like. This is what the Lord's kindness is like through David, who is a man after God's own heart. What is God's love like? Since we're asking, can God love me? And if so, how? What's it look like? Well, here's what his love is like. Are you ready? It's gracious, it's generous, and it's close. He stoops to us. He's gracious, he's generous to us, and he's near us. That's what this 
steadfast kindness of God is to us. We don't deserve it. It's overwhelming, and it's humbling. God's kindness to us is kindness in the face of uncertainty, and we'll see in a few minutes, God's kindness to us, His steadfast kindness is, in fact, kindness that hurts. Remember that from Psalm 15? Someone who keeps an oath when it hurts. I think when we look at the cross of Christ, we can look at God and say, He is one who keeps an oath when it hurts. He is one who keeps a covenant of kindness, even when it hurts, even in the face of uncertainty. Unusual kindness in the face of uncertainty. Well, let's look at chapter 10. I know you're anxious to get to chapter 10 because it's got a battle in it. Well, guys, let's get to the fight. Come on. Kindness in the face of treachery. If Mephibosheth shows us David and God's kindness in the face of uncertainty, this narrative in chapter 10 is David's and God's kindness in the face of treachery. This is a narrative and a story, historical event regarding the Ammonites. The king of the Ammonites has died. It appears that at some point, it's not recorded in the scripture, but at some point, David had made a treaty with the Ammonites. The Ammonites were constantly fighting the people of Israel all the way back to when they came from Egypt. I mean, they've always been bugging the people of Israel. I don't know that they won a single time. They're like the the basketball team that plays the Harlem Globetrotters. You just sort of wonder, what are you guys doing? The bucket doesn't have water in it. It's got... Okay, some of you haven't seen Globetrotters. All right. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died. So what appears, like I said, it appears that at some point David had established a treaty with the Ammonites, the king of the Ammonites. The kind of treaty this would have been is a a vassal treaty where the greater king, David, had a treaty with the lesser king, the Ammonites, and likely the Ammonites were paying tribute of some kind to David. They would send him on an annual basis sheep or wine or oil or wood or gold or something of this kind. Verse 2 of chapter 10, David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of the dead king of the Ammonites, just as his father showed kindness to me. That kindness that was shown to David was likely the tribute that the Ammonites set on a regular basis. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his dead father. Now Hanun's advisors whispered in his ear, David is not sending a delegation to demonstrate his solidarity in your grief and mourning. He is sending a delegation Uh, appearing as a mourning delegation that they might spy out the land and discover how to conquer our city. The city, by the way, if you're wondering where it is, is likely the city of, where the current modern-day city of Amman, Jordan is. So it's east of the Jordan River, probably 45, uh, 60 miles east of Jerusalem. Or maybe further than that, but I think that's about right. So they decide these guys are coming in to spy on the land, coming in to spy to find out how they can conquer us. And so the king, uh, Hanun, uh, captures David's men, shaves off half their beards, not the whole beard, half their beard, forcibly shaves their beard and cuts off their clothing uh, so their hiney is showing and sends them on their way. They're sent out, paraded in their nakedness, which was a significant uh, way to make a, a, 
a, a scrupulous uh, Israelite unclean was to, number, not only one, damage his garments, would, would require a ritual to have it uh, discarded and get the right garment, but to show your nakedness. I don't know if you remember from the law, but even the, the priest, when approaching the temple, had to be, ensure that as he stepped up on the steps, that his robe stayed closed because God wanted to communicate that having sinned and rebelled against him, our shame was seen in our nakedness. And so he, uh, the king of the Ammonites cut out their robes so their nakedness was displayed, shaved off their beards, which, which was a terrible, uh, uh, humiliating uh, thing at that point. All men would have had uh, beards. Completely humiliated David's men. When David heard about this, he told his guys, don't come home, whatever you do. Get a new pair of trousers, maybe some cargo shorts, something. And go to Jericho, which is sort of on the way to Jerusalem. If you're coming from Amman, Jordan, to Jerusalem, even nowadays, you would probably run sort of into Jericho on the way. He said, stop at Jericho, wait for your beard to grow back. Then it was a contest. You know, they're guys. Whose beard can grow back the first? You know they were doing that. <laughs> so David respected his men and said, uh, get your dignity and your ritual cleansing done before you return. And then David turned his attention to the Ammonites to demonstrate to them that they had made a terrible mistake. Here's the thing. When David, the greater king, was showing his sympathy to Hanun, the lesser king, the roles were actually reversed. Hanun, the lesser king, should have been the first one to send a delegation to David to make sure their peace treaty was still, still in force. If he had any brains in him whatsoever or any humility whatsoever, he would have sent a delegation the moment his father died saying, Oh, David, we want to maintain our peaceful regard with you. But instead, Hanun showed treachery in the face of David's kindness. Deuteronomy 7, and you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it, just a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 7. Again, looking at the Lord's kindness in relation to him being the greater king and us being the lessers. Verse 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples, Moses says regarding Israel. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the, the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant love to a thousand generations. So in spite of the fact that the Ammonites had routinely been treacherous to Israel, routinely, over and over and over again, been uh, treacherous to the people of Israel, Nonetheless, David sent his kindness to them by seeking to uh, have solidarity in the mourning and the loss of their king. Just like God shows his love to us. The greater king showing his love to the lesser ones, not because we're great, but because he's awesome. And David does the same thing, showing kindness to the lesser king just because David has God's love in his heart and wants to express to them steadfast kindness. One author said this regarding Hanun, and this may be true of many of us. He had this attitude. This was the attitude of Hanun, the new king of the Ammonites. An unsolicited offer of friendship belongs to an unreality. An unsolicited offer of friendship 
belongs to an unreality. As soon as David made his offer of friendship and steadfast kindness in the face of hundreds of years of treachery, Hanun said this, what is he up to? What is he up to? Hanun, having rejected the kindness of David and the kindness of God, suffered a humiliating defeat on the battlefield. We aren't going to go into detail. Oh, disappointing. Go rent the movie. But Joab takes the army out. He defeats the Amorites. He defeats the Hamanites. He, he defeats all the ites. And at the end of the day, the Ammonites are left all on their own. David does not invade their city and destroy it, I think, as an act of grace and smarts. But all of the other kingdoms that served the Ammonites switched sides and served David. Hanun's response to David's steadfast kindness, three responses, just like Mephibosheth had three responses. Are you ready? He was suspicious of David's kindness. He did not need David's kindness. And frankly, David's kindness was embarrassing. Let me explain. This reveals to us Hanun's view of David. He assumes that David is what? Sly, up to something. He also assumes something else about David, that David is my equal, that David is no better than me. In fact, in many ways, I am better than David. I know better than David. I have a better army than David. Come at me, bro. Might have been Hanun's viewpoint. And finally, he would say this about David's kindness. David's kindness might be good, but it's not the best thing I have going for me. I mean, sure, it's great, but I've got a lot of other stuff that's cool. I've got loyalties, and I have a treaties with all kinds of nationalities, and when I call them to bear, David won't stand a chance. So David's kindness, maybe it's good. It's not the best thing I have going. It's a little embarrassing, David. I mean, you make such a big deal about yourself. At the end of the day, because of his suspicious nature, his belligerence, and frankly, his arrogance, all of his former treaties were broken, and they all make peace with David. The defeat of Hanun is nothing more than the result of rejecting and twisting the kindness of God himself. Hanun decided he didn't need God's love through David. He didn't need God's uh, comfort through David. He twists it and perverts it in his own mind, rejects God's love, and as a result puts, him, as a result, puts himself in the place of judgment. Despite the fact that David showed Hanun kindness in the face of treachery, Hanun rejected it. Let me just say it this way as we get ready to close. God is kind to the treacherous. God is kind to the rebel. God is kind to the fickle. God demonstrates and seeks to comfort and love those who in their heart are rebellious even toward Him. And our, our default reaction to God's kindness, even to the treacherous like us, is similar to Hanun's. What's that? What's that response? It's this. No one is that good. There is no way God is like that. He must be up to something. I mean, don't, we, we think this way. Sure, God is loving, but at some point He's going to do something really nefarious and my life is going to get all screwed up. No one is that good. No one is just loving to, re to rebels, people who sin and people who reject His love. 
God shows kindness to the treacherous, to the rebel. God shows kindness to the disobedient. And the problem we have is not that we don't have a kind God. The problem we have is we're suspicious that He's actually that way. He must be up to something. He wants something. I know, He's probably going to ask for money. Always comes down to that, doesn't it? God's kindness in the face of the uncertainty shows us that God shows kindness that hurts. And God's kindness to the treacherous should let us know God is not up to anything. He's just kind. That's just how He is. That's the kind of God He is. An author put it this way in regard to Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus embodied the concept of kindness in the all-caring, all-inclusive fatherhood of God shown toward just and unjust, far exceeding the divine concern for grass and sparrows and lilies of the field. Jesus embodies the concept of God's steadfast kindness. God's steadfast kindness shows up from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 20. But Jesus is the embodiment of God's steadfast kindness for the just and the unjust. Matthew 21, there's a parable that Jesus says. Jesus says this, listen to a parable. There was a landowner and he planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. And he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. So what they would do is they would establish a vineyard, they would rent it out, and they wouldn't pay rent with money. ATMs were few and far between at that time. And you would pay your rent through a percentage of the yield. of the. So if you, there was a certain amount of grapes that were harvested, the owner of the vineyard would get a certain percentage. And so the owner of the vineyard sent to the farmers who were renting his vineyard to collect his portion so that he could make his own wine. The tenants, when the servants showed up, seized uh, the servants. Some they beat, some they killed, some they stoned, which I think is the same as killed. It's just more painful. Finally, he said, you know what? If I send my son, they'll, they'll know that I'm serious And when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, here is the heir. If we kill this guy, we'll never have to pay rent again. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They rejected his steadfast kindness. They rejected his graciousness for letting them let out his vineyard. He will bring those wretches to an end. Not because he's a mean landowner, but because they rejected his uh, efforts to... Show kindness to them. Hanun didn't value David. Hanun didn't value God's kindness. Judgment results not from just God being a big meanie. Judgment results when we say, God, you're great. I got some better things going. I got a lot of better things going. I don't need your kindness. Give it to somebody else. Give it to those religious people. They seem to need a lot. Another passage I think is important to look at, if you don't mind, Revelation 19.9. 9. 
I'm going to start reading in Revelation 19.6. If you're not sure what Revelation is, if you're looking at maps, you went too far. <laughs> then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. This is the Apostle John in heaven having a vision of heaven. Like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean to wear, was given uh, for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Verse 9, then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are what? Mephibosheth, who get to sit at the table and be the king's son. Blessed are the treacherous who say, I need God's kindness. Blessed are the enemies who say, I want to sit at the table of God and be his son. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who eat at the king's table, who, who say, I need God's love. God, who am I that you would think of me? Not like Hanun who says, who are you, God, that I might waste a minute thinking about you, but like Mephibosheth, who am I, God, that you would think of me? Your kindness is so close. It's too much. This is silly. When we get to heaven, that's our first thing we're going to say. You know what we're going to say? God, this, you overdid it. You could have done a tenth of this, and we would have been square. That's the, when we get to heaven, we realize God was pretty, he's pretty crazy with his generosity. Blessed are those who eat at the king's table. Not king's table, the old buffet out on Jacksonville Highway. Some of you remember that one. Different one. Two people, Mephibosheth and Hanun. Are you ready? Stay with me. We're going to close with this. One is an enemy, Mephibosheth, that offers nothing and is humble. The other one, Hanun, is an enemy, like Mephibosheth, with prior animosity, a treaty breaker, and would say... God through David is good, but he's not the best thing I have going. Let me ask you this. Which one of these does God have kindness for? Which one of these does God have kindness for? Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What? Holy Spirit poured out into all believers. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly who had a lot of potential. Okay, correct me when I read the Bible wrong. Come on, people. Christ died for the ungodly. Which of these does God have kindness for? Both. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare die. And the, the difference person is a righteous person is a religious a person who does a lot of good deeds. A good person is a close friend who has helped me personally. I might die for the religious person who does a lot of good deeds, but my neighbor who has helped me out over and over, I will die for that guy. Okay? That's the difference there. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but for a good, close person someone might possibly die. But listen, verse 8. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still hanun, while we were still treacherous, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. What is the Lord's steadfast kindness? He dies for sinners. Could God love me? Yes, because his steadfast kindness puts him on a cross for sinners. His steadfast kindness puts him on a cross for those of us who are enemies, who have animosity toward him. We are treaty breakers. We take his love for granted. In fact, we have better things going on than God. And he says, I will die for you. Could God love me? Yes. With his steadfast loving kindness that goes to the cross. With his steadfast loving kindness poured out for the rebellious. The question, actually, frankly, I've got to be honest with you, it's just a little bit of a trick on you. Sorry, not sorry. The question is not whether or not God can love us. Can God love someone like me? Yes. The cross makes it demonstrably true He can love people like us. The question is, can I accept it? The question is not, can God love me? The question is, do I buy it? Can I receive His love as a traitor? Can I receive his love as one who is treacherous? Can I receive his love as one who knows I don't deserve it? In fact, I'm humiliated that I need it, and I'm overwhelmed by the outpouring of it. Or am I suspicious of a God who would do this? Do I think he's up to something? Do I think God is good, but it's not the best thing I have going? Could God love me? Yes. Can I receive it? Can I let his love flow into my heart? How do you know when you're not receiving it well? Well, if you're a believer, there's one real good sign that you're not receiving the God, God's love well. And I don't mean this in an in a, um, accusative, I don't mean to be accusing, accusing you. I'm fumbling with my words because English is not my first language. When we carry around this sense that we owe God something because we're not measuring up, we're walking around with this weight on us. Man, I just can't get my act together. I see those other people at church, they seem so dialed in. We're not that dialed in. We just have gone to church a long time and figured out how to put the act on. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's part of the reality. We're not that dialed. Man, I don't, uh, I don't do the things I know I'm supposed to do, and, and the things I'm not supposed to do, man, I'm really, really good at those. How could God possibly? He does. On the cross, that burden falls off, and we no longer have to walk with that burden on us any longer. He took it. We don't have to carry it at all. If you're not a believer, if you don't have in your heart the Holy Spirit, if you've never in your life said, you know what, I need to be rightly related to God because of my a disobedience and because of my rebellion, it's pretty easy. You're going to be like Hanun. We all are to some degree. I just, what, what is God up to? This doesn't make any sense. 
Any religion in the world requires me to do something to get forgiveness. What's he up to? What's he want? This may seem a little bit crazy, but God just loves people. He loves rebels and treacherous people. Now, I don't want you to think you're extra special. The problem is that's the only kind of people there are. Maybe it's time to let go of your suspicions and let go of your arrogance that we all carry and say, I want to receive the love of this God who would redeem even a rebel like me.